This morning we are in Nehemiah chapter 9. We've been working our way through this book over the fall, and uh, we've seen some amazing things, and we have this uh, great text before us this morning. Now, if you look at it, you're going to see 38 verses, and uh, I actually wanted a little bit of time to kind of preach on this passage, so we're not going to take the time to read the entire text this morning. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read verses 1 through 3, and then we're going to jump down to verse 32 and finish out the rest of the passage. So if you would, stand with me as we give attention to the reading of God's Word from Nehemiah chapter 9 this morning. Here beginning in verse 1. It says, Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. And for another quarter of the day, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. Moving down to verse 32. They say, Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people, since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to, to enjoy its good fruits and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father, we gather together as your people, those whom you have called out of darkness into the marvelous light of your kingdom. I pray that as we uh, approach your word this morning, that you would give us a humble heart, that you would give us a, a, a mindset to submit our lives under the authority of your word. I pray that you would lead us to, to be honest about who we are, to rightly see you in your holiness and your perfection. And in light of that, I would, I would ask that you'd, you'd call us in a fresh and new way to cast ourselves on your grace to receive your mercy that is new every morning. And so I just pray that you guide us as we look into this text, reveal to us things that need to change and, and, and the ways in which we need to come more in line with your ways and your law. And I pray that you would ultimately lift up your name in our midst, that we would worship you together as we look into your perfect word. And it's in the glorious name of Jesus that we pray this morning. Amen. You can have a seat. 
I want to start this morning by sharing with you uh, kind of a, a low point in my life. Um, it was the day that I committed my first crime. I know, I know. I know you probably didn't think that was me. I was a real rebel back in the day. But it happened when I was about seven or eight years old. And uh, my mom took me to the store with her. And as I was there, I was uh, looking around and, and seeing different things hung up. And uh, uh, I knew as a kid that uh, if I asked my mom for something, for, for her to buy me something, the answer would automatically be no. My kids should know that, but they still always ask for everything like kids always do. But uh, so, so I saw this, this item that for some reason I just, I just wanted. And uh, it's, it's funny as a kid, the things that stick in your mind so vividly. But uh, it was this keychain. And on that keychain was this little gun, this little revolver. And the gun like worked, it would, it would like spin, and it had its own little holster. It was, it was really cool. And so uh, I, I wanted this. And so I, I thought about asking my mom for it, but I, I knew that her answer would be no. We weren't there to, to get toys. We were there to, to get groceries or something else. And so I, I had a choice. If I was going to get this item, I had one option. And so I looked around, and I snagged that keychain. I stuck it in my coat pocket. And I walked out of the store with my mom. I was surprised that it was so easy. And I got home and I felt, I felt excited and good about the fact that I got this. So I was looking at it and, and enjoying uh, uh, the fruit of my, my criminal activity. And so I, uh, I got home. And then uh, I made a couple crucial issue, uh, crucial mistakes. Um, I, didn't, I didn't create a story of how I got this thing. And then I ended up telling my brother and showing my brother this. And as all good brothers do, they shout the injustice of the thing, right? And he goes directly to my mom and says, Mom, why did you buy Richard something and not us? And my mom <laughs> perks up and says, Huh, I don't remember buying Richard anything. And as I heard her say that, I knew that I was in trouble. And so my mind began to, began to wrestle with, with what do I do with this? How, 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 is there any way out of this? And so as my mom called me in, she said, Richard, what, what, what do you have? I, and I said, oh, nothing. Um, she said, really? Because uh, your brother just, just said that, that you had something. I was like, oh, well, uh, yeah, I, I got this. And, and so, so I went and I, I showed her the little keychain. And I said, well, I, I found it. I just found it. She's like, oh, really? Well, where'd you find it? Oh, like in the parking lot. Um, and, I, and I start fabricating the story. And as kids, we, we think we're good you know, liars, but, you know, parents can always see right through it. It's like, oh, is that, is that a price tag still on, on the keychain? Uh, yeah, and, and in that moment, I, I knew that I had been caught. And I, and I, and I, and I felt the, the, the guilt of my action, and I, and I knew that, that I was going to have to face up to it, and so I began at that moment at that young age to, to cry and cast myself on my mom's mercy and, and tell her that, that I, I, I would never do it again, that I'm sorry, that I didn't want, uh, you know, consequences for that. But I, but I ultimately was called to confess that, that I had done that. But the reason why it was so hard for me at that young age to admit, to confess to my action, was because I knew that if I owned it, if I confessed it, if I was honest about what I did, then it meant that I was guilty and that I was deserving of whatever punishment might come. And confession can be a difficult thing for us. The fear of what it means if we're honest 
with who we are, with the things that we've done, it can lead us many times to just keep running, to try to hide from our sin, to try to excuse it and come up with some other way out. But here in our passage today that we look at here in Nehemiah 9, we see Israel confronted with this moment. And what we see them doing is recognizing, admitting, and confessing their sins to God. And as we have been working our way through this Old Testament book, we've seen this faithful leader, Nehemiah, this prophet as he has led people in the rebuilding of the wall. He has persevered through criticism and conflict. And then last week, we saw how the narrative shifted to not the rebuilding of the structure, but really a rebuilding of the people. And so chapter 9 opens up here at a scene that's likely two days after the events of chapter 8. And in chapter 8, it culminated with this renewed observance of the Feast of, of Tabernacles. And so here, it is on the 24th day of the seventh month, and the people of Israel are once again gathered together. And I think it's important that we take note at the start here of the sequence as we move from chapter 8 into chapter 9. In chapter 8, the nation here is is led into a time of rejoicing, a time of celebration. Remember, as Aaron unpacked that last week, as as the people sit under a fresh reading of God's Word, as they hear the the Scriptures explained to them, they begin first by by almost weeping over over the weight of it, but, but Nehemiah calls them to say, no, this is not a day of weeping. This is a day of celebration. This is going to be a day of, of holy, set apart to God. And so he tells them in chapter 8, he says, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord. So that's how chapter 8 finished with this high celebration in the Feast of Tabernacles. But here in chapter 9, we are ushered into a day of confession, a day of repentance. And it it causes us to to wrestle with what is the relationship between our rejoicing in God and our confession and repentance before God. See, there are times where we first come and we recognize who we are and, and there's a confession of sin and a turning in faith to God. But I think often, genuine confession is born first out of rightly understanding who God is. As we rejoice in and marvel at His grace and His goodness to us, as we do that first, we are led to grasp also the depth of our brokenness. And that will ultimately cause us to turn from our sin and respond to God's grace in renewed faith and allegiance to Him. And so here in in, in Israel's trajectory, we see that their joy in God then leads them to their confession before God. And so this passage shows us ultimately that revival must lead to confession of sin and a turning to God. And so I want to observe briefly this morning these few aspects of this confession in Israel's history that we see in this text. So the first thing that we're, that we're going to see first in these first few verses is Israel's posture of confession. What is the posture that they have as they, as they approach this? It says in verse 1 that they, they, they gather together. The people were assembled with fasting and sackcloth. They had earth or dirt on their heads. They separated themselves from all foreigners and they stood there and they, they confessed openly their sins. 
Now, we have to recognize that this passage is descriptive. It's, it's describing something. It's not demanding that, that we do the same thing for us, right? We're not intended to necessarily come in here all wearing goat hair rags with dirt on our heads. But we would do well to recognize the wisdom of, of, of what is presented in these actions in this text. The act of fasting is, is that which, which, which calls to, to, to grasp the weight or the importance of this, to set aside what, what we often see as, as essential, to, to focus on something that is more important in the moment. The idea of them putting on sackcloth puts them in the, a condition of physical discomfort that reflects the uncomfortable nature of dealing with sin. The dirt on their heads gives this visual symbol of grief. That this is something, something to mourn the state that they are in and where they have been led to this point. As they set themselves apart, they recognize again and, and affirm that they are to be a holy and set-apart people for God. And then, they are led in that posture to be honest about themselves. The passage then also shows how they, they enter into a preparation for this repentance. As again, the law is read before them. You thought last week there was, there was a long time of reading God's Word. Again, we have this. The, Israel is in these extended times of, of, of gathering. You know, here it says that, that for a quarter of the day, now it's probably a reference to kind of the light portion of the day, so like a 12-hour period. So a quarter of the day is spent reading the Scriptures and a quarter of the day is spent worshiping and confessing. So for six hours, they, they spend in this, this, this cycle of looking to the Scriptures and they're responding accordingly to it. And it's, it's, it's rough in here if we go for an hour and a half, but for them, they spend six hours just laboring over the Word and, and seeking to let it rule and reign over their lives. And that's what the Scriptures do, right? So Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16 that, that God's Word is, is breathed out by Him. And it's given to him as, to us as his very word for the purpose of, of teaching, for reproof, for correction. So, so, so it points out what, what is wrong in our lives. It is a mirror to us to see where, where we've gone off track. And it, and, it, and it gives us correction to put us back on the right way. And it gives us instruction in the ways of righteousness. This is what the Scriptures are for. And as we sit under the, 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 the Word of God in our lives each and every day and every week as we come together, it is there that, that God prepares us to be honest with ourselves and to be able to confess to Him our sins. And so there is a time and a place for us to, to, to join in the psalmist as he says in, in Psalm 139, search me, O God, know my heart, try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And so we see Israel in this moment preparing themselves and, and taking a posture to, to recognize the weight and the gravity of their sin before a holy God. We see the, the narrative move forward towards Israel's proclamation of confession here. Their proclamation of confession. And we're given these, this list of these men, these Levites, those of the priestly tribe, and they are now set forth to lead the people in this extended prayer of confession. And verses 5 all the way through 37 really form this one long prayer. It's, I believe, the longest recorded prayer in all of Scripture. It's a continuous corporate prayer. And really, it's a summary recounting of all of Israel's history. 
If you want a Cliff Notes version of the Old Testament, it's here in Nehemiah chapter 9. kind of summarizes the whole flow of Israel's history. And throughout this prayer, we see this constant shift from focusing on God's goodness and His faithfulness on the one hand, with the people's recognition of their regular sin, rebellion, and failure to be the faithful covenant partners that God intended them to be. So I want to just try to break down this prayer very quickly. What we observe first is that it is a corporate confession. It's the people of God collectively coming together before God and confessing these sins. And this has been a, a, a pattern of the church for many years to come together and, and corporately confess sin. This doesn't mean that we come and we just each individually confess everything that we've done, but, but just as, as, as Cole led us even earlier this morning in, in a prayer of confession, as, as we enter in that together, we are invited to recognize all the ways that we have fallen short of, of, of God's standard and our need of Him. Not to be saved anew, but to recognize the holiness of God and our constant need of Him. So there is a place for, for corporate confession and, and a prayer together, but it always needs to be connected with the promises of Scripture that give us the assurance of our pardon. That we don't just sit in our sin, but we are guaranteed that there has been a sacrifice paid for those sins, and we have assurance of pardon from them. And so they, they enter into this corporate confession together, and the prayer starts in verse 5. And here they are called first to recognize God for who He is. They say this, they say, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. And as we often highlight in the Scriptures in the Old Testament, when you see Lord in all capital letters, that is a a use of the covenant name of God that was first introduced all the way back in Exodus chapter 3, where God declared to Moses who He was when He said, I am that I am, and He gives His name as we often say, of Yahweh. And so this prayer starts with a proper recognition of who God is. It says, Blessed be your glorious name which is exalted above all blessing and praise. The starting point for confession and repentance is a right understanding of who God is and conversely, our relationship to Him. And so here the Levites start this public prayer by exalting the name of God to His rightful place. See, He's not just your friend. He's not just a support deity, but He is the sovereign Lord over all things. He is Lord alone. There is none like Him. He does not share His status with any other. And only as we rightly see Him for who He is can we rightly approach Him in our condition. And so the prayer then, as it starts with who God is, it continues by declaring the works of God. Starts with creation, that Yahweh is the creator of all things, the heaven, the earth, the universe, the stars, all that is in them. It has come into being by His very power and is sustained and held together through Him. It next moves to highlight the the call of Abraham. The establishment of the Abrahamic covenant the commitment to bring him and his descendants into the land of promise. And because of God's righteous character, he ultimately accomplished that. The prayer moves on and remembers this climactic moment in Israel's history where they are graciously delivered from slavery in Egypt. God sent the plagues against Pharaoh. He brings them out and he parts the Red Sea and he destroys their enemies who chase after them. 
In verses 12 to 15, it focuses on, on, on the way that God led the children of Israel through the wilderness. All those years, He constantly provided for them. He guided them through the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. He led them to Sinai. He gave them His law, and He entered into this covenant relationship with them to make Him His people. He provided them bread from heaven. He provided them water out of a rock. He met their need. He didn't let their shoes wear out. But He faithfully led them back to the land of promise in fulfillment of His commitment to Him, to them. And then verse 16 begins to introduce us to a a new theme here. It's that of Israel's unfaithfulness. In light of all that God had done, all His miraculous deeds, all His his years of faithful care, how did the people respond to Him? They say this, they said, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. How then did God respond to their disobedience? Well, He acted in line with His character. And in the words that are the most quoted phrases in all of Scripture, we read this, but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And because of that, it says that He did not forsake them. Even when they made a golden calf and they worshipped it, they attributed their deliverance from Egypt to this thing, to this, to this statue. Even in light of this horrific blasphemy, it says this, that God in His great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. <clears throat> Instead, it says that He sent His Spirit to teach them. He continued to provide them with food and water for 40 years amid their constant rebellion. He stayed with them. He sustained them. And He took care of them. The next section highlights how God led them into the promised land. How He gave them victory in the conquest of Canaan. He gave them wonderful abundance in the land. And in verse 25, it says, They ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in His great goodness. So how did they then respond to this era of blessing? It says this, it says, nevertheless, nevertheless, they were disobedient. They rebelled against you. They cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who had warned them, who had, who had invited them to return to him, and they committed great blasphemies. God then, he, he finally got their attention by delivering them into the hands of the surrounding nations. And as they cried out in their distress, what did God do? He sent the judges, these saviors, to come and rescue them over and over again. And yet, time and time again, it says they sinned against His rules. They turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and they would not obey. Verses 30 to 31 then describe the general period, I think, from the, from the monarchy all the way to the exile. And essentially, for many years, God bore with them He even sent His prophets to warn them, to call them back to God, and yet they would not listen. And so eventually, what did God do? He eventually sent the Assyrians, later the Babylonians, to carry them off into exile. And yet, verse 31 says this, says, nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and a merciful God. 
You know, sometimes people today will look at the Old Testament and kind of scoff at it and, and ridicule it, saying, and the, the, the God of the Old Testament is just this, this angry deity just out for, out for blood and out for vengeance. And yes, yes, God is a God of, of justice. There is judgment that, that, that must be meted. But, but, but as you look through Israel's history, the overwhelming view of God that is portrayed that Israel is here recognizing is that amidst man's rebellion against Him, He has remained faithful and patient with them time and time again. And I think this, this, this image of God is just this angry God is only, is only set forth because, because people don't want to reckon with the depths of our rebellion and our depravity. How much we, 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 we reject God in, in, in everything that we do and we reject His goodness. Only then can we, can we kind of paint this picture of God as this, as this angry God. But what Israel declares is that, that He is a God of mercy, of grace, and of justice. And then in verse 30, verses 32 to 37 that we read earlier, it describes their present distress. It gets down to this current generation. And it says in these few verses that, that they confess the historical rebellion of the previous generations that led them to this point, but they also then recognize their own sinfulness against the backdrop of what is God's unceasing covenant love and steadfast faithfulness. I'd encourage you this week to try to spend some more time reading this prayer, reflecting on it, seeing how faithful God was to His people. But let me ask you, is there any part of you that resonates with this prayer? Do you see that cycle even in your own life? Do you see and can you recognize God's constant faithfulness to you, that He is there, that He's patient with you, He has held on to you, and yet you see also your regular struggle, regular failure to treasure and obey Him? Do you resonate with this prayer? And to Israel and to us is offered the grace of confession. But as we, as we look at Israel's prayer, there's some things that we can draw out that we see as their priorities of confession. What are the priorities of confession when we think about what it means to come to God? First of all, as, we, as we've highlighted already, it first starts with a recognition of God's character and His faithful acts. Israel's, Israel's prayer begins by starting with who God is and His acts of faithfulness to them recounting those things. If we are going to confess rightly to God, we have to recognize and see Him as holy, as perfect, as other than us. That He has a standard that is His very character. The second priority in confession after we recognize God's character is that we actually acknowledge our sin. By this, we, we, we mean that we call sin what it is. That we're honest about sin. This isn't a concept that is fun to preach on for, for, for many. This isn't a concept that is fun uh, you know, to, to, to dwell on, but then this is often a, a concept in our society that is minimized, that is kind of wants, wants to be disregarded. It's not easily accepted and, and, and a concept that our society easily shares. And I think sometimes we can kind of buy into that. 
where we don't really want to call it sin, we want to actually just maybe call them mistakes that we've made. Or maybe things that we didn't intend to do. Maybe we begin to find reasons why we did something. Maybe it's just my personality. Maybe it's just the way my family dealt with things. Maybe it's just a result of the hard life that I've had and the, the, the lot that I was given. And how many times do we, do we deny the sinfulness that comes from within us by attributing it to something else? But true confession recognizes sin for what it is. True repentance sees sin as God sees it. That we agree with God about all the ways that we fail to conform to His character and to His law. And as we do that, confession is a desire to turn away from that sin and turn in faith to God. And to commit to following Him and His way that His path is the path to flourishing and to joy. So the priorities of confession are to recognize who God is, to acknowledge our sin, and to turn from our sin and turn in faith to God. But as we, as we look at this text, I think there's one thing that we need, to, we need to highlight here. And I think it's this. We need to highlight the problem with confession. The problem with confession, and specifically with Israel's confession here. See, verse 38 in the text, as it finishes out chapter 9, is not part of the prayer, but it's this declaration of the response that Israel is going to have with everything they've already said. So it says this, verse 38 says, because of all of this, in light of everything that they've just said, the recognition of their failures and, 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 a, and a reassurance of God's faithfulness, it says this, it says, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed documents are the names of our princes, Levites, and our priests. So because of all this, Israel is now going to renew their covenant commitment to Yahweh. And that's what we have in chapter 10, all the way through verse 26 is just a list of names. These are the ones that, 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 that is signed off as representatives of this, this covenant renewal that is to take place. And that's what we'll see in chapter 10 next week. But do you see what's going on? Just think with me about, about, about this moment right here. Israel has spent the past, what, 70 years in captivity under the Babylonian Empire. They've been in exile because of the failures of the previous generation and their failure to obey God, to live as His covenant people. And now, at this moment, they are recognizing their condition. They've seen God's faithfulness to bring them back to the land, to, to, to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the walls of the city. They, they began to come back to God's Word and respond rightly to it. They recognize the condition they're in and they, they cry out and say, we, we are in great distress. This is not what you intended, God. You intended us to live under your rule and reign, but we are living as slaves in our own land that you gave to us. And they're calling out to Him once again. And they're committing in writing to be faithful to the covenant. And I think we can read this and say, what a great ending. This is awesome. This is good, right? The people are reestablished in Jerusalem. 
They have a new temple. They have walls. They, they now are entering into a firm commitment to, to love God, to be His people. This is awesome. This is great. What a fairy tale ending. But aren't you prone to ask and to say, haven't we seen this before? Haven't we seen this very scene just displayed throughout this prayer? These 30 verses? Do you remember back in Israel's history what they did constantly after God rescued them? Exodus 14, He brought them out of Egypt through these miraculous signs. He leads them into the wilderness. They show up at the Red Sea. They look back and they see the Egyptians and they say, what is this? Why are we out here? You know what, have you just brought us out here to die? And they fail to believe that God can rescue them. Later on, at Sinai, God, God gives them the law on, 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 the, on the tablets and he, he enters into this covenant relationship with them. And, and, and what, do, what do they say? After, after, after Moses reads the, the, the list of all these things to them, they say, all the words that God has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient Flip over just a few pages, Exodus 32, and what do you see? They're all sitting there bowing down to a golden calf. When Israel didn't want, they wanted a king like the nations, and so, so God gives them Saul, and, and then the, the, the monarchy is, is established under David, and, and, and we see just, as it seems as though it's like being established as this great thing, what we see so quickly is the corruption that comes in through even the kings of Israel. You know, read all through their history, you got good king, bad king, good king, bad king. One king will try to tear down the idols and, and reestablish the nation. The next one comes along and builds them up again. And we see the cycle over and over. The prophets come and call them to deliverance and call them to recognize that the judgment will come if, if, if they do not turn from their sins and they ignore them. We see this cycle and this pattern all throughout Israel's history. So why is this moment going to be any different? Is this generation just got it figured out? Is Nehemiah the, the most perfect leader that can actually lead them to faithful covenant partnership? Will God's vision for His people finally come to completion at this point? Spoiler alert, if you read forward in the text that we'll get to in just a few pages in the next few weeks, things get distorted really quickly. Corruption comes in that Nehemiah himself has to try to correct. And you see, the problem with Israel's history of confession is that they didn't have the ability to keep their end of the covenant. The answer to their situation was not simply a new and hearty commitment to be better. They didn't need just longer fasting, itchier sackcloth, and longer prayers. They needed someone who could be a faithful covenant son. They needed God to do something, to bring in a covering for their sin, and to ultimately give them what Jeremiah and Ezekiel promised, that of a new heart. They needed God to bring that day that was told through Jeremiah, which He would make a new covenant with His people. That He would write His law on their hearts. 
that we would remove the heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh, that He would forgive their sins and their iniquities and He would remember them no more. And we only see the true return from exile possible in the person of Jesus. As He comes, as He spends those days in the wilderness being tempted by Satan, and He is the faithful Son who holds up, who passes the test in the wilderness, who comes and lives the perfect life that we couldn't live, who ultimately gives His life as the only perfect atoning sacrifice to cover our sins. That is what the people ultimately needed. Not merely a commitment to do better. So maybe you're here and you feel like you're trapped in that loop in your own life. Constantly trying to clean yourself up. Constantly trying to, trying to figure it out and do better. But you, you, know, you show up at church for a while and, and things are kind of going good, but you always end up in the same pattern, the same failures, and the same struggles. Maybe you run from God. You try to hide that sin. You try to minimize that sin and try to deal with it in other ways. Maybe you start to come back and feel like maybe you've cleaned yourself up enough where you can start coming back. Do you, do you feel that loop and, and cycle in your own life? You have to realize that your confession is not enough. You can't just do better. But change ultimately comes from that which we cannot do inside of ourselves. It has to be something that God does in us. So will you, yes, confess and repent of your sins, but not just try to be better tomorrow, but will you turn in faith to Jesus, believe that He has provided the payment that you needed for your sins? It's a free offer of His grace to you to cast yourself upon Him, to receive His salvation and His forgiveness, and only then can He make you holy. For the Christians here, for, for those of us who, who have put their faith in Jesus, we may be then asked, well, what is the role of confession in our lives? Ultimately, why, why do we need to confess our sins if Jesus has already paid for them? If we do that, aren't we not believing that our sins are forgiven if we have to confess them and ask for forgiveness? And the Scripture says no, as we are invited to, to confess our sins. And we see that, that as we have faith in, in, in Christ, confession and repentance is the act of saying the same thing about our sins as God. That sin is an affront to His holiness and that our sins need to be punished, but that Christ's atonement has paid for it in full. And so confession becomes the means by which we live into our positional righteous standing before God. The way that we experience the reality of our forgiven status. Yes, we believe in our eternal union with Christ and with God because of Christ's atoning work. But as we practice daily our experiential communion with God, Confession is the appropriation of what has been accomplished and applied to us in the Gospel. And it's through confession that we are reminded of and turned back to the joy and freedom of the Gospel. And in light of what Christ has done for us in a belief in His finished work, it allows us 
not to approach our sins like I did as a scared seven-year-old trying to excuse and minimize and, and avoid my sin. But the Gospel invites us to openly confess that we're not perfect, that we don't have it all together, that we, that we do fail to live up to God's standard. And it's because of that reality that we need the gift and the sacrifice of Jesus. And so in confession, we are believing anew the Gospel and reminding ourselves of what God wants to make us into. And so this text does offer us an example and a pattern of true confession. But it also reminds us that apart from the finished work of Jesus, the best that we have is our own bootstraps and our own mere commitment. But in Christ and in Him alone do we have the promise that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and He is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray to God together. Father, we come to You as those who have been made holy because of the work of Jesus, and yet we recognize that we have not yet arrived. We are not yet glorified. We long for the day in which we all sin will be put away. But as we, as we live now, as we wrestle with ongoing sin in our lives, I pray that You would give us the humility and the confidence and the assurance to confess those things to You, knowing that the payment for those things has already been made. I pray that You would teach us to, to stop trying to hide, minimize, and run from our sin, but help us to learn to hide our sin in You. I pray that You would uh, help us and make us into the people that You long for us to be. Let us be a people that can be a light to this world and show the love, the goodness, and the faithfulness of God despite our unfaithfulness. We love You, Father. It's in Your good and glorious name that we pray. Amen.